This week on the Backtable Podcast. PCNL is a really important part of our armamentarium now. You know, there's maybe a trend toward more and more ureteroscopy, and Ralph Clayman, you know, likes to sort of, you know, promote provoke controversy and saying, you know, is PCNL dead? Because you know, as we're getting better and better ureteroscopically and the ability to use larger access sheets, maybe it makes a difference. But I also think as we've decreased the morbidity of PCNL with mini PCNL and micro PCNL and ultra mini, um, you know, I think we lower the threshold for performing procedures in an anti-grade fashion. And I think anything that um, that avoids the use of a stent, if you can avoid the use of a stent, is a win in patients' eyes. everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes for our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. My name is Aditya Bagrodia, and along with Jose Silva, we are serving as your hosts. And I couldn't be happier to introduce our guest today, Peggy Pearl, who is the Vice Chair of uh, the Department of Urology at UT Southwestern, along with a full professor. I can't say enough about Peggy. I've known her for almost 13 years now. We could spend the entire 45 minutes talking about her, but she is an incredibly um, comprehensive, deliberate, and thoughtful clinician. She is a truly gifted surgeon. Her contributions to education, to research, and um, you know, just the general advancement of our specialty has been um, without comparison. Personally, she inspired my career in uh, academic urology, and I'll forever be grateful. So, Peggy, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. How's your day going? Great, Aditya. Thanks so much, and thanks for the kind introduction. Fact is, a lot of my productivity is thanks to you because you worked with me when you were a medical student and a resident, and you've been a phenomenal partner and colleague. So thank you for inviting me to do this. I'm really happy to be here. All right. Great, great. So um, a lot of wisdom, I think, coming our ways uh, regarding percutaneous uh, renal surgery. And let's just jump on into it, Peggy. So criteria for performing PCNL. What are your kind of absolute indications for PCNL? I think absolute indications, at least historically, have basically been large and complex stones. So, you know, historically greater than two centimeters, we would say, or, or whenever there's unusual anatomy that might be difficult to access in a retrograde fashion, ureteroscopically or to treat with shockwave lithotripsy. But I think the indications are, are definitely moving as the procedure itself has become less invasive. I think more and more we're treating smaller and smaller stones because it's a really effective way of treating stones. So if we can make the procedure less effective, then we can apply it to stones that historically we sort of stretch the limits of ureteroscopy or shockwave lithotripsy for um, because it, it had less morbidity for the patient. So uh, stones down to 15 millimeters or even less um, depending on the type of percutaneous procedure that's being done are now considered acceptable. And certainly anatomic issues, um, anytime there's distal obstruction that's not going to allow passage of fragments after the procedure or that doesn't allow retrograde access to the kidney, regardless of the size of the stone, um, would be treated percutaneously. Okay. Okay. What is the um, preferred imaging for both anatomy delineation, um, collecting system delineation that you like to go with? 
I mean, in our guidelines, you know, we recommend that that anyone who's undergoing a percutaneous procedure um, have CT imaging um, beforehand. And it's it's sort of left to the discretion of the practitioner whether that's done with or without contrast. Um, the fact is, most of the time we don't have contrast with our CT imaging, so there can be surprises with anatomy. So when I'm in doubt, um, I like to see a CT urogram and I like to see the collecting system anatomy delineated. Um, a CT without contrast is good for basically establishing the stone burden, and it's good for the relational anatomy of the kidney. So it's good for showing where the pleural space is, where the liver or spleen is. Um, you know, if there's a malrotation of the kidney, it's it's good for that, but it doesn't show intrarenal anatomy very well. So I think if in doubt, if anything looks funny, um, it's really helpful to have a CT urogram. If you can't discern whether a stone is in a calyceal diverticulum, then having contrast can be really helpful and it prevents you from having surprises. So although it's certainly not mandatory, and I would say in the majority of cases, we don't have contrast imaging, uh, you know, prior, you know, in the past, um, I used to always insist on having an IVP along with a CT um, because it did give me that anatomy. And I tried to, to avoid the extra radiation associated with a CT urogram. Now it's sort of difficult to get IVPs altogether. So CT urograms helpful, but Sometimes it's helpful to just see that kind of more three-dimensionally, even than just looking at axial or coronal imaging. Um, so it's nice to have contrast, not mandatory, but but it does help prevent surprises. And Peggy, do you use uh, healthy units as an indication to, uh, to what type of procedure will you go to? Right. So it's a good question. So Hounsfield units help us determine, you know, the density of the stone. And it's most useful really for determining whether um, a stone is amenable to shockwave lithotripsy. So, you know, you know, relatively lower Hounsfield units, Hounsfield units less than a thousand would be considered something amenable to shockwave lithotripsy, provided size and anatomy are also favorable. Um, for a percutaneous approach, less important. But if you're trying to determine what's the best treatment approach, whether it's shockwave lithotripsy, ureteroscopy, or PCNL, um, Hounsfield units would be helpful for, you know, ruling in or ruling out shockwave lithotripsy as a possibility. But from a, the standpoint of PCNL, you know, really the density of the stone is sort of less important, you know, just it, it'll, it'll affect how long it might take you to fragment a stone. But, but in terms of treatment selection, probably not so important. And maybe when we're thinking about, you know, stone characteristics, the um, Hounsfield units, the size of the stone, whether or not potentially you're concerned about it being an infectious stone, I feel like there are so many options now. Of course, there's ureteroscopy. We have standard PCNL. We have mini perks. We have micro perks. We have ultra mini perks. Um, I think we could have an entire conversation about that. But does that is this a part of your armamentarium um, and tool kit as you think about treating these stones? Yeah. So that's a great question. So you know, I I, I freely admit I'm not you know fully adept at at mini PC now or ultra mini PC now, and I've I've done several, but it's not a standard part of my armamentarium. I think from the standpoint of infection stones, I think you want the lowest 
pressure system, the lowest intrarenal pressure that you can achieve. And there's no question that with, with mini and ultra mini PCNL, the intrarenal pressures are a bit higher. And from there have been at least some, there's been at least some data suggesting that the potential for infection may be higher. I'm not sure clinically that's actually been realized, but there have been some, um, some experimental data on that. Um, you know, the larger the sheath, the lower the intrarenal pressure and the less risk there's going to be of, uh, uh, you know, potentially of infectious complications just from pressure in the kidney. So if I have an infectious stone, I mean, I, I generally want to maintain as lower intrarenal pressure as possible. Um, and, and the fact is most infection stones do happen to be larger stones. I mean, it's not that often that you do ureteroscopy and, and you find a small struvite stone. It happens. They obviously start at some size, but, uh, but more often than not, those are large stones. And, and I think doing those under you know, the, the lowest pressure possible is optimal. Um, so I might be a little more hesitant to be thinking along the lines of mini PC now, although I'm sure there are many urologists who would say they do mini PC now really regardless of the size or composition of the stone. Um, you still have the ability to get the fragments out with mini PCNL just from the sort of Venturi effect, just the, um, you know, just you pull the, when you pull out the nephroscope, it tends to have sort of a vacuum effect that, that sucks the fragments out. So I think it's doable. I, I'm just, you know, I worry certainly about infectious stones, just like I don't like doing them ureteroscopically, even if they were a size that would be amenable to ureteroscopy. I, and even with an access sheath, I, I really want that intrarenal pressure to be low because you have the potential to make patients pretty sick. In terms of Hounsfield units, I'm not sure otherwise that would concern me as much in my selection of size of of sheath that I'm using, whether it's mini, you know, uh, ultra mini, micro uh, PCNL, I'm less concerned about that. It's really just a matter of, you know, how long or short it takes you to fragment the stone um, and how many fragments it generates. I mean, I tend to like harder stones just in the sense that they generate finite you know, finite fragments that can sort of either be pulled out or sucked out. But, you know, the, the softer the stone, the more you end up with fragments all over the place. So I sort of just same as with ureteroscopy, I sort of prefer harder stones for a lot of reasons. Okay. Okay. And, and Peggy, in terms of, of uh, patient factors, uh, comorbidity, obesity, what, what patients will you not offer a PCNL? I mean, honestly, there's almost no one I okay. think that that you can't offer PCNL. Um, you know, obesity. You know, we do. I, I I can't think of a time that I had someone so obese that I couldn't perk them. Um, you just have appropriate equipment. You have to have scopes and sheaths that are long enough um, to to span the skin to to collecting system distance. Um, and, and I haven't. I haven't yet had a patient who was so large that, that my sheaths and scopes didn't, didn't reach. Um, positioning is, is always a challenging issue, but I also haven't yet had a patient that I just couldn't position. I think as long as you have a table that has some versatility, um, we use a trump bed and it just, it allows us to um, really manipulate just about every angle uh, for the arms and the legs. Uh, we treat patients on a, in, a, in the uh, split leg position prone. And so we can, we can bend down at the waist. If the patient is very contracted, we can bend at the knees with our table. So we can really accommodate 
a lot of these, you know, cerebral palsy um, patients and things that have a lot of contractures um, and just pad them appropriately and just make sure that everything is comfortably positioned and well padded and padding all pressure points. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, with some ingenuity, we can generally get patients positioned appropriately. Spina bifida patients can sometimes be difficult just because they tend to have a wall of ribs that it's sometimes difficult to get in between the ribs or they're very um, uh, contracted to one side. So there's not a lot of distance between, um, you know, the 12th rib and the superior iliac crest. Um, but somehow we sort of muddle through it and tend to find our way into the kidney one way or another. So I, I think, you know, we're more limited. I think sometimes you're reteroscopically or cystoscopically than we are percutaneously. We can sort of almost always find a window. That's, that's super helpful, Peggy. And so you spent quite a bit of time talking about infectious stones. Can you just talk a little bit about your, you know, of course we, we have imaging, um, urine cultures, kind of management of uh, positive cultures, timing of when you like to get these, um, just going into this, making it as safe as possible. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty aggressive um, about you know antibiotic use and so forth because these patients can really get sick, and so I think we want to do everything we can to to try to prevent those infectious complications because a lot of these staghorn stones that we're treating percutaneously are infection stones, and so they're they're full of bacteria, and you can you know, treat for extended periods of time preoperatively, but you can't penetrate into the stone. So I think we do the best we can to sort of, you know, semi-sterilize the urine around the stone, um, knowing that when we start fragmenting the stone, we're going to be releasing bacteria. But um, I'm, you know, pretty insistent about urine cultures done within about two weeks preoperatively, treating with appropriate antibiotics beforehand. Um, admittedly, I don't always reculture the urine once they've been treated with antibiotics. If I'm treating with a culture-specific antibiotic, I'm usually pretty comfortable that we can proceed um, on antibiotics. Even with negative cultures, I do tend to treat with antibiotics for about five to seven days preoperatively. And there's some controversy about that and some conflicting studies in terms of the length of time that you need to treat with antibiotics preoperatively, particularly in patients with urine with with negative urine cultures, we may not need to treat them preoperatively at all, and just perioperative antibiotics may be adequate. Um, I tend to still generally give at least a few days, if not a week, of antibiotics preoperatively. But the the positive culture ones, I think we have to be really aggressive about. And I don't hesitate to put pick lines in in advance and treat patients with a full week of antibiotics. I'm pretty reluctant to just admit patients the day before who have a positive urine culture and give them 24 hours of intravenous antibiotics. I generally want a full course. And I know infectious disease will often argue that they, they want to really minimize the antibiotics in these patients, and they'll want you to just treat for a dose beforehand and a short period of time afterward. But I have to admit, I'm, I'm much more aggressive than that. You know, I've certainly seen my infectious complications, my, my share of infectious complications and patients who end up being, um, you know, uh, admitted to the intensive care unit postoperatively because of sepsis. Um, but for the most part, we have a relatively low rate of sepsis, I think, in our practice here with the, with, um, the three of us that are doing percutaneous procedures. And um, 
um, you know, I attribute it to being really pretty aggressive and taking these cultures seriously. Um, we have a system here at UT Southwestern that we worked out with the microbiology department where we have a special code that we can use that indicates that we want all um, organisms to be worked up. So even low colony counts and even multiple organisms, particularly if it's coming from any kind of indwelling tube, they will work up all the isolates. And so I make sure that, you know, even in someone, you know, who has multiple uh, organisms, we make sure we're treating with culture specific antibiotics that cover all organisms um, for at least a, you know, five to seven day course preoperatively. And I think that 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 does help us really keep our infectious complications down. Um, so we're, we're aggressive about it. I, I take it really seriously. And what antibiotics do you use? Uh, for a patient that does a symptomatic patient, uh, urine culture negative, uh, which one do you use? Yeah, so I typically use ampicillin and cefepime. I We used to use ampicillin and genomycin, and I sort of got away from genomycin a bit um, just because of renal function issues and so forth. And um, cefepime seems to have pretty broad coverage. You can argue in summer, some are just using a cephalosporin, some are just using ciprofloxacin or, or a quinolone, but I, I tend to use ampicillin and, and cefepime, hoping that I'm going to catch, you know, enterococcus, if there's enterococcus in the stone that was never picked up and any gram negatives. Um, so I think that's a reasonably good broad spectrum regimen. And are you routinely getting stone cultures and renal pelvic cultures intraoperatively? Yeah, I don't do it on every case. Um, if the stone has the appearance of just being a, you know, pretty typical, um, you know, calcium oxalate type stone and the patients don't have a history of um, recurrent urinary tract infections and the urine culture preoperatively was negative, I'm not doing it on every patient knowing that that you know, urine cultures preoperatively can definitely miss, uh, you know, definitely under underestimate the, the amount of positive cultures that will be detected both from the stone and from the renal pelvis urine. But in any patient who's had recurrent urinary tract infections, who has anything that has the appearance of an infection stone, um, we certainly do send the stone for culture. If they're coming in with a pre-existing nephrostomy tube or a stent, do you ever prophylactically treat them with antifungals? Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good uh, question and comment because, you know, fungal sepsis, uh, you know, I think we all would agree is, is really one of the um, probably worst forms of sepsis that we deal with. And those patients get incredibly sick. So, you know, sometimes I'll just think about it and think this patient's been on a lot of antibiotics preoperatively. Let's just give a, you know, a dose of, uh, of an antifungal, you know, at the time of surgery, not necessarily preoperatively. Sometimes I look in the kidney and I see something that looks a little fluffier than I like to see, and I'll start it then. But it is absolutely something to keep in mind um, preoperatively. And I know, you know, Nicole Miller is has always been a proponent of, you know, being pretty liberal about placing nephrostomy tubes preoperatively if they don't have tubes in, but they have a high grade obstruction and you know concern that she will often put a nephrostomy tube in so you can sample the urine preoperatively and know what you're actually treating. Um, 
you know, which might reveal fungus, but but certainly with tubes in place, uh, they're at higher risk of that. So in patients with with longer term indwelling tubes, um, I am definitely thinking about antifungals. I may not do it routinely every time if cultures from the tube were negative, um, but sometimes the cultures are negative for yeast, and yet intraoperatively, I'll uh, there will be appearance that maybe there's yeast, and then I'll I'll add it at the time. Okay, yeah, I think something for all of us that. Uh... We come across patients are just kind of not doing quite as well, and then things start spiraling to, to keep in the back of your mind. And I think this is actually going to dovetail quite nicely into, you know, access, whether we get that prophylactically um, with our colleagues in interventional radiology or whether that's something that can be done on the urology side. Um, before we jump into some of those considerations, I want to ask you a quick question. Patients coming in with partial stags or full stags, positive UTIs, not clinically sick. Are those patients routinely getting decompressed or do you think it's safe to um, manage them with antibiotics, you know, try to sterilize them and then treat them as you typically would down the way? Yeah, I I don't typically decompress them. Um, patients will often come to me with a stent or nephrostomy tube in place, but um, if I encounter them, if they're referred to me and they don't have drainage um, or I'm seeing for the, for the first time and they don't have drainage, I don't routinely um, place a drainage tube unless, you know, sometimes they'll have sort of the appearance of, of, of an XGP type kidney. And that might worry me more that I might want to sample that urine and, and save a trip to the operating room. Because if you get in there and you find pus, then you know, kind of case, you know, you're going to put in a frosty tube in and, and, and get out. Um, so, but I, I don't typically, um, now there are times I've been burned by that and, and found pus at the time of obtaining access. Um, but more often than not, I'd say usually I don't. Um, and again, this is where Nicole Miller probably is more aggressive about, you know, putting tubes in and sampling the urine. Um, I just obtain my routine urine cultures and treat appropriately and aggressively with antibiotics preoperatively and intraoperatively. Um, but I don't necessarily prophylactically place nephrostomy tubes, even in a patient with a staghorn stone and hydronephrosis. So in that case that uh, you will encounter some pus, then you cancel the procedure, board, and just leave the nephrostomy, give antibiotics and come back on another occasion. I mean, yes and no. Yes. For the, for, I mean, the board answer to that is yes. And, okay. and, and I would say in most instances, the answer to that is yes. However, I, there have certainly been cases, you know, that, you know, maybe I don't want to admit, but, but there definitely have been cases where I just feel that I'm just not going to get the kidney adequately drained and I'm going to drain one little calyx and I'm going to leave the rest of the kidney undrained. So I will sometimes go in there, you know, with a, with a big excess sheath and, maintaining as low intrarenal pressure as possible and try to just get through some of that stone till I could clear maybe into the pelvis and just get better drainage of the kidney. And I'll try to spend as little time as possible, um, but enough to maybe get the kidney better drained because sometimes you come back and, you, you know, you, you start, you know, you, you, you access, you know, through using the nephrostomy tube you had. And then as soon as you get into the pelvis or you get into some other part of the kidney, you encounter pus again. So you just, so there are some circumstances where you just don't get the kidney adequately drained until you get some of the stone out. I've had this discussion with, with some of my colleagues and, you know, I think we've all been in that situation where we've done that. And, you know, it's, you know, I worry about it. Am I doing the right thing? If this patient gets really sick, I'm going to regret this, but 
but there are times that I just feel I'm, I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to achieve anything unless I clear some stone out to make way for better drainage. And in those cases, you will leave like a big foley uh, instead of just a, a, an 18 French or I mean a, a smaller caliber nephrostomy. Yeah, and, and, and I don't know if that's really necessary or not. But generally, if I've you know if I've been in there and I I I, di I went ahead dilated the track to you know 24 French or 30 French, um, I may leave a 16 or 18 French tube um, in place. You know that is going to uh, achieve you know good drainage and also leave way for me to to come back the second time. And I don't, I don't go through that procedure with the intent of finishing it. I go through with the intent of getting enough stone out to achieve better drainage. Drainage. Okay. Okay. And before we start talking about access, one last question, you know, patients with, on AFib, uh, recent PEs, coronary artery disease, and of course, I'm assuming that we engage their cardiologist, uh, you know, when it's safe to come off anticoagulation. But broad strokes, a couple of questions. Aspirin, are you okay with that? And in general, is there a time frame after surgery where you feel comfortable resuming anticoagulation? Yeah, it's great questions. And I'd say for me, somewhat of a moving target. Um, in terms of aspirin, I mean, if, if, the aspirin, if the aspirin can be safely stopped, then I'd rather stop it. I mean, I certainly don't want to take chances I don't have to take. On the other hand, do I think aspirin makes the difference between someone with a significant bleed and someone not? Probably not. I mean, aspirin, I don't think makes the difference between having a pseudoaneurysm and not having a pseudoaneurysm. Um, I think uh, that that's less of an issue. So if, if someone had to stay on aspirin um, for cardiovascular reasons, that would not dissuade me from going ahead. Plavix, on the other hand, or other anticoagulants, much less worried. I mean, much more worried in, in those cases, certainly Plavix. Um, but aspirin, that that's not a game stopper for me, but, uh, but I'm not cavalier about it either. Um, in terms of post-op anticoagulation, you know, it's kind of been a work in progress for me. I mean, I'd say for most of my career, I was willing to restart anticoagulation within a couple of days. I mean, sometimes that night, sometimes the next day, but I've been burned for sure um, and had patients bleed postoperatively. Um, you know, I don't know that that, I don't know that you can avoid a delayed bleed um, for that, but you might avoid those early bleeds. And I know from, you know, talking to Jeff Kadedu here, we've had these conversations during grand rounds many times um, in terms of after partial nephrectomies, for instance, he's pretty insistent in not starting anticoagulation for, I think it's two weeks. I can't remember if it's one week or two weeks, but one or two weeks longer than I typically, I think two weeks longer than I typically was waiting, but I'm starting to come around and think maybe that's the right thing to do. I mean, my philosophy has sort of always been, you know, you can always somehow deal with a bleed, but if someone has some significant cardiovascular event, you know, you may not see your way out of that. And so, you know, I've always thought I'm, I, I'd rather have the bleed. Um, but I don't know, in my older age, as I, it's causes more stress for me now when they have these bleeds postoperatively or solitary kidney or something that I worry more or a patient who can sort of ill afford to, to undergo a, an arteriogram or embolization. Um, I'm starting to think maybe we should be waiting a little longer. Now I'm sort of stretching it out to more like a week, but that that's definitely longer than I used to wait. 
Um, two weeks makes me nervous from a cardiovascular standpoint. I just worry about what happens to these patients in AFib. Are they going to throw a clot? You know, uh, I, I, I'm a little worried about waiting that long. Yeah, I definitely recall the kind of bimodal distribution of bleeds in that first 48 hours and then the 10 to 14 day range, which uh, I think Jeff has actually published on and certainly happened. I think we've all seen it. Uh, okay, excellent. So access, maybe we just start out with, you know, when are the, what are the clinical scenarios where you're typically going to kind of work in conjunction with your interventional radiology colleagues to get access? So, you know, that's really, it's certainly variable across the field. I mean, there are, you know, some radio or some urologists who obtain their own access and some who never do, and some who work very closely with their interventional radiologists, particularly intraoperatively. Um, I definitely think you are hurt if you don't have access being obtained in the operating room. I mean, I, you know, it's innumerable cases that would that I have in my career that would never have been able to be done if the access wasn't obtained intraoperatively at the time. So, you know, whether it's an interventional radiologist or whether it's a urologist, I think it needs to be done in the operating room because there are times I get access and the amount of purchase I have with my guide wire is like a couple sonometers. So I barely have a guide wire in. Um, you could never do that outside of the operating room and somehow stably transfer that patient to the operating room and expect that you're going to maintain that guide wire in the collecting system and you're going to lose it. So I think it needs to be done in the operating room. You know, I definitely have a preference for doing it as a urologist because um, because I, I know what works for me and I know what doesn't. Um, there are a lot of interventional radiologists that come into the operating room and they they are there till they see you in the collecting system. So they know too what works and what gets you in and what doesn't get you in. Um, so I, you know, I have no problem with that. And that that model works very well for a lot of urologists. Um, you know, the need for second access is always a rate limiting step because if you have to bring someone back in, then you're sort of at the mercy of when the interventional radiologist can come back in the room to get access for you. So in that sense, uh, you know, when I started my career, I didn't get my own access and I worked closely with an interventional radiologist who was phenomenal, um, but I would wait for him. He didn't like starting cases at seven in the morning. He wasn't used to coming until eight. So we would, you know, twiddle our thumbs for a little while waiting for him to come. And when we needed to come back for second access, you know, it would take some time. So once I started learning myself, it was, you know, definitely an advantage um, to be able to do it yourself and to get good at it and to know what works for you. And again, to be able to obtain these really precarious accesses that just barely get you in, but get you close enough that you can kind of dig your way into the kidney. So um, for sure in my career, that's been advantageous to, to be getting access myself. But but I would just, you know, say for anybody out there, it should be done in the operating room because they're going, you know, calocele diverticula, you know, very tenuous access into a, a collecting system with a full stag you're you're just not going to be able to get stable purchase with a guide wire or a catheter reliably um, and transport the patient. So I, I think it should be done in the operating room. So that said, do I ever rely on interventional radiology? Yes, I do, because I myself don't do ultrasound guided access. And so I do have times where um, 
for instance, a calosil diverticulum that doesn't fill with contrast and doesn't have a stone in it, but nonetheless needs to be treated, then I really don't have a way to access it. If I can't, if putting a catheter into the collecting system and, and opacifying with contrast doesn't fill the diverticulum, I'm kind of stuck because uh, if I can't use ultrasound, I can't see it. Um, so that would be one instance, um, you know, and that's happened a couple of times in my career where I've had to have interventional radiology access a tick that was non-opacifiable, you know, almost an excluded calyx. Um, the second um, situation is, um, and, and again, which could potentially be overcome by ultrasound guided access in the operating room, is if you're worried about the liver spleen. And, you know, most of the time, I think careful look at the CT can pretty much guide you. You know that you need to stay really medial so generally, it's going to be you're able to take in the information from your preoperative imaging, do your planning, you know, tip of the liver, tip of the spleen, retro, renal, colon, et cetera. Those might be, you know, rare scenarios. Um, but it sounds like kind of the take home messages is that um, it should be thoughtful, not just the easiest calyx um, that facilitates the surgery that you intend to do and ideally done in the operating room. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, there's no question that, you know, anybody can do a PCNL if you have precise, um, well thought out access. And and on the other hand, even a very experienced endourologist can can flail at a PCNL if the access was ill chosen. So I think preoperative planning and decision-making in terms of where you want that percutaneous puncture is critical and careful look at the CT scan is important. You know, the, the fact is though, we do CTs with patients in the supine position and there's no question that things move when you're prone. So there'll be times that I think, oh, if I put the patient prone, everything, you know, the colon's going to fall forward, but it doesn't. It tends to be just the opposite. It's like it squeezes the colon further posteriorly. So, um, and, and there's no question that I'll think that I can do an access that'll stay below the 12th rib when they're prone, it's always higher. The calyces are always higher when they're prone. Again, it's just like sort of pushing things up. So we don't know exactly from the CT scan, what things are going to look like, um, when a patient is prone, I had a small bowel injury one time in, if you look at the preoperative CT scan, the small bowel is nowhere close to being posteriorly. There's no way you could get into small bowel. And postoperatively, I looked at the CT scan and I'm going right through small bowel. And somehow the small bowel just slipped back behind the kidney when the patient was prone. It was unbelievable. And I watched the uh, general surgeon go in to, to actually went in laparoscopically. It was a 15 minute procedure. You could see where the tube sort of goes in and out and just clipped off a few centimeters of small bowel, reanastomosed it, literally 15 minute procedure. But I mean, it required a small bowel resection. Um, so you would never have predicted that based on the CT. So we do the best we can, but I think ultrasound guided access is helpful. Um, and, and I, I think more and more urologists are learning that skill and I haven't mastered it yet. Um, but I, I think it's helpful and it, it gives us, uh, certainly more, um, intraoperative information than we might have. Perfect. Perfect. So maybe now we move into the operating room. So prone versus supine, any strong opinions there? So, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a prone, uh, PCNL, 
um, practitioner. And, and I think if you look at the literature, there, there are many trials, there are many, you know, retrospective and prospective randomized trials that have compared patients. And the, the bottom line is it really doesn't matter. There's really um, operating times a little shorter. If you certainly operating room time is a little shorter if you do it supine because of the positioning issues. Um, but there's really no difference in stone free rates or blood loss or stone, you know, any other real parameters, hospital stay. So I, it, the bottom line, I think, is it's a dealer's choice. People love, you know, that do the supine position are, you know, love it and, you know, are big advocates of it. And it's certainly easier than place, placing position, uh, placing patients prone from a pulmonary and cardiovascular standpoint, although everyone thinks that there's a, a greater risk when, the, when they're prone, it's actually not. Um, from a cardiovascular standpoint, it's not unfavorable. In fact, patients are placed in the prone position in the ICU with ARDS and other, other, you know, cardiovascular or pulmonary problems. Um, so it, there's not really a cardiovascular advantage to that. Um, you know, in my career, how many times have I had to flip a patient supine because of some catastrophe that was happening once that I can think of. So it generally not an issue. Our team is so efficient at getting patients prone that that adds you know, 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes to the whole operating room time, but I just haven't found it to be a barrier. And I find much more freedom of motion um, in the, in the prone position. Um, certainly if you do a lot of upper pole access that you don't do a lot of upper pole access in the supine position. Some do, most are doing lower pole access um, when they're treating patients supine. So if you're an advocate of, of a lot of upper pole um, PCNL, you're probably better off doing it prone. Fantastic. What type of wires are you using? You always leave a safety wire or you always try to? I do. I try to. I, I get access, you know, because I learned from an interventional radiologist. Um, I use a, you know, what's called a Jeffrey set, which is um, just a, a, you know, uses a, a 0.018 inch platinum tip guide wire, a cope mandrel wire. So I get access with a 22 gauge or 21 gauge needle, um, which will only accommodate a smaller wire. So that's a, a, a 0.018 inch uh, guide wire. You then have to transition to a standard size guide wire using um, some kind of an introducer set. So as I said, I use what's called a Jeffrey introducer set. And it's really stiff. It's got an inner metal stiffener and an inner dilator and then an outer sheath. Um, so it's especially in an obese patient or someone who has a lot of scarring in the kidney, it's really rigid and it follows that platinum tip guide wire, which actually has a fair amount of rigidity too, even though it's so small. Um, I find it much easier to get in using that very rigid system. It gets through the fascia and through the capsule really nicely. Once you have the sheath in, it accommodates three standard size guide wires. So then I can, I can easily get um, my Amplat super stiff guide wire, which I use as my working guide wire. And I just use a standard uh, Benson guide wire um, as my safety wire. So if, if I have the opportunity, I, I certainly routinely use a safety wire, but Sometimes it's all I can do to get one wire in the kidney and then I use one wire. But I, you know, when I can use a safety wire, I do. I, I try not to cut corners. Peg, I'm going to ask you to back up just a step. So maybe I'm just going to ask you, you know, so the patient's positioned um, and you're 
practice, I believe, that you still are doing uh, retrograde air pilograms uh, to understand your intraoperative collecting system anatomy. So can you just talk us through that process, which allows you to get your percutaneous access? Yeah, so I place patients prone, and I, I still do prone cystoscopy. Um, to pass a retrograde catheter into the collecting system. I still tend to use an occlusion balloon only because it helps prevent fragments from traveling down the ureter. Um, and it allows me to opacify the collecting system with some occlusion so that I can get the collecting system a little more dilated. Um, there are lots of people that put access sheaths up. Um, they can opacify um, with a with an access sheath as well. Some just use a five French angiographic catheter. Um, but I still like an occlusion balloon because I, 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 I definitely notice that I can, I can dilate the collecting system more and that often helps pass the guide wire. Um, I use air typically, um, if I can avoid putting contrast in the collecting system, I like that because then I don't have to worry about a bunch of extravasation. If it, if it takes more than one puncture to get in the collecting system, I don't have contrast all over the place, which sometimes can really make your visibility extremely difficult as you go from bad to worse. And, you know, you reach a point where you can't see the collecting system anatomy at all. So I use air if I can, I'm, you know, use it gently. I'm careful about it. Um, but it also helps identify posterior calyces. So the air will rise into the posterior calyces. So I, it, that can help me identify what a posterior calyx is by ultrasound. It's, it's much easier to distinguish anterior from posterior. Um, and then, you know, I, I, you know, generally have an idea of where I want to access, you know, based on my preoperative imaging, but the intraoperative imaging may change my mind about where I want to go. Um, once I see where the stone is, um, sometimes an air pilogram is not helpful if there's a lot of bowel gas or stool and you just can't see what the air is really opacifying, then I'll use contrast. Um, I try to use it very dilute and as little of it as possible. And that in combination with air still can sometimes delineate the air-filled posterior calyces um, and distinguish them from the, the contrast-filled anterior calyces. Um, and then Additionally, you can distinguish anterior from posterior by just um, obliquing the C-arm away from the surgeon. And as you oblique the C-arm away, the posterior calyces will elongate and move towards you. Um, anterior calyces will shorten and move away. So by taking, moving the C-arm, obliquing it back to straight AP and then laterally away from you, I can see which way the calyces are moving. So between that and air, um, I can usually distinguish what's anterior and posterior and try to choose the posterior calyx um, unless for some reason I have to go, I, I have to puncture an anterior calyx because that's where the stone is and it's the only chance I have of getting there. Um, so then I, I uh, obtain access again using, using my, my 22 gauge needle and try to get a wire down the ureter if I can. I don't, you know, torture myself trying to negotiate something down the ureter, but I certainly prefer it. And an obese patient, I really prefer it because I want as much stability with my guide wire as possible because it's so easy to lose a guide wire in an obese patient. You know, you just move your scope a little bit and it just pulls out of the kidney. 
Um, I mean, it's remarkable how little wire you have in the kidney when it's just coiled in a calyx. So um, if I can get it down the ureter, I do. And, and again, if I can get a safety wire in, which in most cases I can, I do. Okay. And then I use balloon dilation, you know, typically. One uh, question that kind of came to mind, as you mentioned, contrast extravasation. Patients with an iodine allergy, are you pre-medicating? I mean, of course, you're interrenal, but there can be some, you know, non-negligible systemic absorption. Yeah, I, I definitely do. Um, I give all those patients standard steroid preps um, beforehand. Um, I, I'm I'm pretty adamant about that because for sure they can absorb contrast. And there are definitely times where there's a fair amount of contrast extravasating out, whether it's during access or whether it's um, later in the procedure when we're opacifying the collecting system to map out the, the calyceal system and to assure that we've entered and inspected all the calyces, um, we inject contrast and it's certainly easy to get extravasation and absorption. So yeah, I do, I do a steroid prep routinely. Okay. So you've used your balloon to dilate. And then is there a preferred sheet that you typically go with? I mean, I, I still, as a standard, I'm using a, a you know, a 30 French sheath. Um, we can use 24 French sheaths sometimes. Um, if you do that, you can't use the sheath of your nephroscope. So if I use, for instance, a 24 French nephroscope, um, you have to take the sheath off to use it through a 24 French sheath. I'm not sure the difference between 24 French and 30 French makes enough difference to warrant that. I think if you really want to get into smaller axes, then you have to be looking at something less than 18 French, ideally less than 16 French. Um, so between 24 and 30 French to me isn't isn't a real big difference. So I still tend to use a, a bigger access sheath and that you know, doesn't have to impact the size of the tube you leave postoperatively. You can still leave a smaller tube, whether it's an eight or a 10 French cope loop or a 16 French or 18 French um, council catheter over an angiographic catheter. Um, you know, we know that that you can leave smaller nephrostomy tubes despite larger, uh, you know, access tract. And are you using the clear sheath? I am not. Um, you know, the clear sheath, you know, they talk about it now and um, you know, the, it, it originally came out like several years ago, there were companies that, that made the clear sheath. And I thought it was such a brilliant idea until I used it. And it is frightening. <laughs> it's, I mean, you are literally seeing everything outside the sheath. You're seeing the fat, you're seeing everything. <laughs> and it's really hard to see when the sheath is actually in or when it's not. Yeah. And when they first came out, I talked to them about it and, you know, they put a stripe on it and the stripe was to help you, you know, know when you were in the sheath or not, but when you were in the collecting system or not, but it's still as hard to see it. So that's one of those ideas that I thought was, was brilliant, you know, theoretically, but in practice, I hated it. I, I really hated it. It was not helpful. It was very confusing and very disconcerting. You know, I don't want to see the parenchyma. I don't yeah. want to see that. I just want to know my sheath is in. Good. Good. Okay. So, you know, having done a bunch of these cases with Peggy, somehow she miraculously always manages to find her way into the collecting system with very little to do. But what are what are kind of red flags, you know? I mean, when you see nice yellow urothelium, it's obviously um, a sign of relief. And to me, it was. Uh, 
someone with your experience, I think it's expected. But what are what are red flags that something's not quite right? You know, I think uh, when there's a lot of bleeding, then then usually you're either not in far enough or you've split the infundibulum and you're in too far. I mean, you know, the goal is to dilate the tract to, to get your radiopaque mark on the balloon just inside the calyx. Um, you don't need to go further. Your scope isn't as big as your sheath. So even though your scope, you know, a 24 French nephroscope may get through an infundibulum, a 30 French sheath may not. Um, and same with smaller scopes and smaller sheaths. So you really just want your sheath into the collecting system. So if I'm short, um, then I just carefully follow the guide wire. Oftentimes I'll just use a grasping forcep and try to follow it and sort of spread along the way. If I've under dilated, I'd rather under dilate than over dilate because you can under dilate and find your way in. If you over dilate and you split the infundibulum, there's no turning back. Um, but when you're following the guide wire in it, you have to be really careful because as you torque your scope and you're looking for the guide wire and you're sort of moving your scope and moving your sheath, you can pull the guide wire right out of the collecting system. So the key is you have to, you know, follow the guide wire and try to keep the guide wire in one place and adjust your scope to follow the guide wire and not move your scope such that you move the guide wire out. So that's, that's tricky. I have to say, I tend to grab the scope away from a resident or fellow when we're in that situation, because I, you know, I've been there, I've made every mistake you can make um, and just learn from experience how to try to negotiate that scope in along a guide wire or following a guide wire without without losing your access. Okay. And on a you know more typical case, you're in, you know, good visibility, um, let's just say, you know, moderate size stone burden. Um, what's your kind of, you know, standard approach in terms of what type of lithotriptors are you using? Um, you know, when do you have to to break out your kind of second line guns, if you could just kind of walk us through your, your tools there. Yeah. So, you know, I guess my go-to, um, is, is the, the Olympus shock pulse. Um, and it's a, it's a, you know, sort of conventionally it's a, it's a, it's a single probe. It has sort of dual lithotrite actions kind of has ultrasonic and pneumatic action through a single probe. Um, now there's a trilogy, which is, which is a Boston scientific instrument, um, that also has sort of a dual lithotrite action. And, and, you know, there's some studies suggesting that it, um, Maybe more efficient and and fragment stones uh, a quicker you know uh, more rapid stone clearance. Um, I the one I'd say thing that's really missing is there was a device um, on the market that has subsequently been withdrawn um, called the stone breaker um, that just was a sort of mechanical and impacting device that used a, a CO two compressed CO two cartridge. And it wasn't, there was, it was, it just used the, the the cartridge for power. It wasn't connected to any electricity or no foot pedal. And it was incredibly effective for hard stones. And we don't have that anymore. There was a problem with the sterilization of it. And I miss that because there are some uric acid stags that are incredibly hard, like the hardest stones that you deal with, that, that any of the other lithotrites just don't effectively break up at all. 
And I've been in situations where I'm just fragmenting and fragmenting and fragmenting and nothing's happening. And this, this, the, the, this Stoneberger used to just break them up into pieces really effectively. And you could just uh, grasp and, and remove the fragments. And we just don't have anything like that anymore that, if, that, that you can count on with an incredibly hard stone. So I miss that device a lot. Um, a laser, you know, we always have availability, especially when there are stones remote from the nephrostomy tract that you can only access with a flexible scope. Um, and so if you use a flexible nephroscope and you get into a, a, another calyx, um, then you need to break up a stone with, with just standard uh, homium or thulium fiber laser. Um, so those are really the two devices that I, that I really keep at my disposal. Do, do you routinely do uh, multiple access rather than using the flexible scope? No, I definitely much more commonly use a flexible scope okay. if I can access it, but but I don't shy away from multiple accesses at all. And I certainly have my share of cases with, you know, I mean, I've, I've had eight accesses or 12 accesses in a case if, if in patients with stenotic and fibula. I mean, there are times that even if you can get there flexibly, if the volume of stone is so great, um, and if, you know, you have to pull all those fragments out of the calyx, you're just better off with another access. So, you know, those are definitely, you know, the exceptions rather than the rule, but, but I think you always have to be prepared for that. There are times that, that, that it's so much faster to get a second access than to do it flexibly, that it's just worthwhile. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, you know, Stones are cleared. I, I can certainly tell you as a person that's trained with Peggy that that <laughs> kidney system is going to be cleared out by any metric before you leave. Um, Will, and I kind of want to just pick your brain on exit strategies in a moment. But before we do that, we talked about, you know, pus and how that's generally going to be a cause for aborting the procedure. Any other kind of intraoperative occurrences that would you know, tell you, okay, we've got to, you know, fight this one another day. I mean, I think if you have a significant perforation of the collecting system and, and the fragments are, you know, number one, you're losing fragments out of a hole, or even more importantly, you're just getting significant extravasation of fluid. Um, then, then, then it's time to get out. I mean, a small perforation, you know, again, it's a relatively low pressure system. I think you can get away with, you know, spending a little time. Um, if I can, if I can advance my access sheath a bit to cover a hole, I'll do that. If it's a split somewhere in the infundibulum, but if you have a big hole in the renal pelvis, there's, there's not much getting around that. And, you know, you don't want to spend a whole lot of time with your nephroscope through a hole out in the retroperitoneum trying to, you know, retrieve fragments. Um, and you can get a significant absorption of fluid if you do that. So I think, um, you know, if you have a significant renal pelvic perforation, you should be thinking about getting out as quickly as you can, as soon as you can get, uh, you know, adequately established drainage with a nephrostomy tube. So that would be one reason for aborting. Significant bleeding, certainly um, a, a more common reason for aborting. Um, you know, you reach a point where you're just, you know, collecting clot in the bag, it's, it's probably time to get out because almost always, once you get your nephrostomy tube in, the bleeding will cease. So I, I think, um, you know, as much as we have a tendency and I'm completely guilty of this, of sort of pushing on thinking I'm almost done, I'm almost done. Um, you know, probably the better part of valor is to put in a, a nephrostomy tube and, and, and come back 48 hours later and, and you're going to have a clear field and it's going to be a lot safer for the patient. Okay. 
And maybe just uh, if you could talk a little bit about when you're inclined to leave stents in place, tubes, which types of tubes, and even tubeless, for instance, would be helpful. Yeah, so there's, you know, there's there's definitely a trend toward more tubeless procedures, I'd say. Um, uh, more and more urologists are doing tubeless procedures, and we certainly know that we can do that safely and compared to standard PCNL with nephrostomy tubes in place, um, you know, the risk of, of, of bleeding or needing transfusion is really pretty comparable. Um, so I think we can do it safely. In my mind, the, the issue has always been for me is the residual fragments. And, you know, almost 100% of the time when I finish a PC now, I think that my patients are stone free. I do a thorough flexible nephroscopy at the end of every case, multiple trips around the kidney with a flexible nephroscope, um, imaging, you know, looking in every calyx. And I'm wrong at least 30% of the time, probably more like 60% of the time. Um, you do CTs postoperatively and patients have residual stones. And I think it just depends on your philosophy about residual fragments. And Aditya, you did seminal work in this area. Um, but you know, my feeling is, is that, you know, if you're going to make a hole in someone's kidney, you've got an obligation to get them stone free. Um, you know, you can put an nephrostomy tube in and you can come back and you can get those residual fragments out. So until we have a better way of assuring that we have gotten every fragment out, I don't want to burn a bridge. And so I like to leave a nephrostomy tube in place. I get a CT scan on postoperative day one. And if they have residual fragments, they come back for a planned second look procedure 48 hours later. Some urologists don't have the luxury of being able to schedule two procedures 48 hours apart, but just because of operating room time, we established that practice a long time ago. And we have the luxury of, of being able to do that. If, if patients are stone free, we cancel the second look. Um, but we always have that time available to look back. So in my mind, I just don't want to burn the bridge. Um, I also find that patients hate stents. They hate stents. When they go home, they want to go home with no tubes. And by leaving a tube in place postoperatively, imaging with a CT on postoperative day one, I can take out their nephrostomy tube on postoperative A1 if they're stone free and send them home with no tubes and with an assurance that they have no residual fragments. Um, if I have to look back in the kidney a second time, I have the ability to do that. I take, I leave the nephrostomy tube out after the second procedure. And again, they go home free, go home stone free and with no nephrostomy tube. Those who, who, perform tubeless, you know, will will state that they'll do imaging maybe or maybe not with a CT. I'd say most often not. And if they're residual fragments, they'll bring them back and do ureteroscopy in a couple of weeks. I would argue, this is just my, you know, guess, is that most of the time those patients aren't brought back for second procedures. There's just a whole lot less push for you to go back a second time once they leave the hospital. They don't want to go back for another procedure. Once they leave the hospital, they want to be done. And um, I, I just think that we have a, a much lower or much higher threshold for, for going back for residual stones once they leave the hospital with a stent in place. So at least in my mind, I think if it's me, I'd rather go home with no tubes and know that it's over and that all my stones are out. But I, you know, I would have to say I'm probably the minority in that. 
you know, I think there's more and more tubeless PCNLs being done because they are less invasive and, and, you know, everybody pretty much goes home on post-op day one and um, they're left with no nephrostomy tubes. So there's certainly less pain. And that's definitely been shown in randomized trials to be the case. Routine uh, chest imaging, just to evaluate for hydrothorax, is that still a part of your algorithm? Uh, so I look fluoroscopically at the end of the procedure as a matter of routine. Um, if I don't see a hydrothorax, then um, I, I don't typically do any further imaging in the recovery room. Um, we looked at that a long time ago and, and we imaged everybody with a chest x-ray um, in the, in the PACU and then did CT imaging of the chest on post-op day one. And we didn't, uh, the, the number of times the proportion of patients in whom you miss uh, or that you will pick up a hydrothorax that was missed uh, intraoperatively is extremely low. Most of the time, uh, patients will develop a hydrothorax in a delayed setting and chest x-ray in PAC, you wouldn't have picked that up. So we do sometimes pick, we do more often than not pick it up on the post-up day one CT scan because we include the lung bases on the CT. So we'll see a hydrothorax and then we can either have interventional radiology, place a tube, or if we go back for a second look, we'll place a, a you know, a, an eight or 10 French uh, locking loop nephrostomy tube into the chest at the time we go back for our second look procedure. Um, but we haven't done chest x-rays in, in PACU for a long time. Uh, fluoroscopy is, is a really effective way to detect a, a hydrothorax. Okay. And any tests to um, assess whether the kidney is draining antegrade? So, you know, that's sort of controversial as well. We always do an antegrade nephrostogram at the end of the procedure. When, when we're looking with our flexible nephroscope, we either look down the ureter with the ureteroscope or a nephroscope, or we at the very least will inject contrast in an antegrade fashion to clear the ureter. I still sort of believe in antegrade nephrostograms postoperatively, although we have a protocol where we use contrast-enhanced ultrasound to assess antegrade drainage if the patients are stone-free or have less than two millimeter residual fragments. So in other words, if all we need to do is establish whether or not patients are draining, we use contrast-enhanced ultrasound. If they have a significant residual stone left over that I will take them back to the operating room for, which would be really anything two millimeters or greater, um, then I like to have the anatomy that an antegrade nephrostogram provides because between a CT and an antegrade nephrostogram, I can pretty precisely identify where that residual stone is located. And it gives me so much more information for when I go back for my second look that I know that that stone is anterior to my calyx of entry or it's the next most superior calyx, I really kind of know where it is I need to go. So I like to have a contrast study at that time if I'm going to go back for a second look. But otherwise, contrast-enhanced ultrasound has worked very well for us um, in terms of, I mean, you know, we've rarely gotten burned on a, on a contrast-enhanced ultrasound that showed drainage and then patients subsequently had a problem. But occasionally, I mean, they can, they can pass a clot down the ureter that may not have been there at the time of their, of their contrast-enhanced ultrasound. Okay. Okay. So, um, you know, hopefully, as is typically the case, stone-free, tubes coming out, um, tube comes out, encounter bleeding. Can you walk us through, you know, kind of the management, your preferred way of a early or even a delayed post-operative bleed? Yeah. So, you know, and are you talking about outside of the operating room? Yes, yes. So outside the operating room, typically, if if we have, for instance, a 
a council catheter in the kidney, which we advance over a, like a five French angiographic catheter into the bladder, we typically remove the council catheter first, leaving the angiographic catheter in place. So that if there's bleeding encountered immediately, you can just slip the council catheter back over the angiographic catheter into the collecting system. And that will almost always stop the bleeding until you can get to interventional radiology. So, you know, we sort of give it just a little time before burning that, 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 that angiographic catheter. In rare cases, and I've certainly had them through my career where we had to take them straight to interventional radiology, you know, because of a significant bleed, um, you know, we've done so, but we've almost always been able to get a tube back in. So we've had very few, you know, real sort of dire emergency, big bleeds that, that were, you know, critical in terms of wheeling them, you know, pretty much down to, to IR right away. But if you can get a nephrostomy tube back in, um, it'll generally stop. And then and then we would subsequently take them to interventional radiology. And I think the key in terms of you know arteriograms is that you sometimes have to, number one, deflate the balloon to find the bleeder or find the, the pseudoaneurysm, um, or you have to back the nephrostomy tube out. So again, we'll, we'll, we'll put a wire down our angiographic catheter. Um, and then if they do an arteriogram on a first run and don't see a bleed, then we deflate the balloon and then we back the nephrostomy tube out. And sometimes there's significant bleeding as you back it out, but you just you're not going to be able to find the pseudoaneurysm sometimes until you get the tube out of the way. So we're always kind of prepared to do that. Uh, and, and, and our, our interventional radiologists are aware that, you know, they may need to contact us to, to come and move the tube if need be. Okay. And um, if it's a little bit more equivocal, do you have any strong opinions on going straight to IR versus getting like a CT angio just to kind of delineate things? Yeah, that's a, an ongoing controversy. Uh, the interventional radiologist almost always will ask for um, a CTA. And, you know, we tend to not like it because it's a contrast load and, and it's a contrast load that I, I still don't trust it if it's negative. If, if the CTA is negative, I don't know that an arteriogram is negative. And, and really, there's no good literature on it. There's nothing that really, you know, there, there are no prospective studies that do both. And I think that's what you really need. You need to do a CTA and then you need to take them and do an arteriogram because I don't trust it. I mean, I've had patients that, that I have like insisted on as many as three arteriograms saying, you know, they've, it comes back negative twice. And it's like, look, this patient has a pseudoaneurysm. I mean, they're bleeding episodically. This is clearly an arteriogram. And on the third try, they find it. So, um, you know, Jose, I'm sure you can speak to this, um, but the CTA always worries me because if it's negative and somebody's coming back with a classic bleed, I'm not going to trust it till they have an arteriogram. I'm worried about sending somebody home, you know, with a possibility of another big bleed at home um, until I know that an arteriogram is negative. And that's not 100% either. Um, I don't know. I'd be interested in hearing your opinion about CTA versus going straight to arteriogram. So, so like you said, I interventional radiologists would always ask for the CTA first. So, so I mean, I usually let, let them decide and then eventually the, the patient will need the arteriogram because they continue the bleeding, uh, dropping hemoglobin. So eventually they will out doing the arteriogram anyways. But, you know, it's a matter of just not, not fighting, I guess. And <laughs> right. 
it's it's an ongoing battle. I I just feel like it delays the inevitable. I mean, their their argument is, you know, if they can identify the if they can identify a pseudorandomism on a CTA, on a yeah on a CTA, then when they do an arteriogram, they can use less contrast because they kind of know where to look for it. But, you know, in patients who already have some compromised renal function and, you know, I'm always concerned about giving them, you know, two contrast loads in a row, basically. Um, and I just feel like it's just it's just delaying the inevitable and, you know, maybe wasting some valuable time and uh, you know, uh, uh, encountering more blood loss in the process. Um, but we're looking at that. We've actually been trying to sort of retrospectively look at our series. You know, the problem is you have to have done both on everybody until you really know, you know, you, you've got to have the full diameter or the full denominator, you know, to, to really know um, if, if CT or if CTA or if an arteriogram is picking up bleeds that the CTA doesn't. Other complication that I would say is not common or that uncommon, hydrothorax, they've got a tube in, whether that was intraoperative, uh, intraoperatively placed by you or, you know, picked up and, and placed with um, IR. Can you just broad strokes your algorithm in terms of timing of x-rays, tube removal, when you think it's safe to get the patient out? Yeah. So once I put, um, if I put a, an eight or a 10 French uh, cope loop, you know, uh, drainage tube into the chest, say intraoperatively, um, I, I put it to, to, um, to wall suction overnight, um, not because I'm worried about, you know, a pneumothorax. Occasionally you'll have a pneumothorax, mostly not. Um, so I'm not so worried about that. I just want to maximize the, the drainage. Um, the next morning I'll check a chest x-ray and if it looks like the chest is well drained, then I take it off. Uh, I just put it to water seal and, uh, you know, watch for drainage. Whenever the drainage from the nephros or from the, uh, chest tube ceases, um, and a chest x-ray is negative, then I pull it out. And I would say more often than not, um, it's 24 hours. Usually there's a lot of drainage at first, and then it just slows down and stops overnight. So it's usually, I'd say it costs an extra day to two days in the hospital. I mean, sometimes just by the time you've played the tube game. So I try to get the nephrostomy tube out, you know, right away. Once I have a chest tube in, I want the nephrostomy tube out because nothing's happening until you, until you stop traversing, you know, the pleural space. So I think it's, it's just a matter of waiting till there's no more drainage and then assuring that, there's not fluid accumulating in the chest that 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 would hide the fact you know which which would explain the fact that you're not seeing any more drainage. The chest X-ray is good. There's no more drainage. Then I pull the tube out, and you know wait four or five hours, repeat a chest X-ray, and if it's okay, the patient goes home. So it's it's a you know twenty four an extra twenty four to forty eight hour process. Okay, okay. So as these patients get out, convalesce, um, nearly certainly, I imagine these are getting. Uh, full, these patients are getting full metabolic evaluations. They're going to get stone composition analysis and um, receive appropriate counseling to prevent these stones that really do require a lot of work to get them stone free. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, for the, for the most part, anybody who's requiring a, a PCNL is going to have probably a significant enough stone burden, even if it's their first stone, um, to warrant metabolic evaluation. So I typically will do follow-up imaging about six to eight weeks after PCNL, just an ultrasound and a KUB. And at that point, I initiate a metabolic evaluation 
have them collect two 24 hour urines. Um, I do a screening, uh, I do screening blood work at the time I initially see them even before surgery, just to, to assure that they don't have any um, suggestion of underlying conditions associated with stones like renal tubular acidosis or, um, or primary hyperparathyroidism. Tremendous. So Peggy, I mean, an absolute wealth of information. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. Nostalgic walk down memory lane. Um, any kind of, you know, take home <laughs> messages for general urologists, trainees, people interested in endourology that, that kind of, you know, you'd like to leave as, as parting thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, PCNL is a really important part of our armamentarium. Now, you know, there's maybe a trend toward more and more ureteroscopy and Ralph Clayman, you know, likes to sort of, you know, promote, provoke controversy and saying, you know, is PCNL dead? Because, you know, as we're getting better and better ureteroscopically and the ability to use larger access sheets, maybe it makes a difference. But I also think as we've decreased the morbidity of PCNL with mini PCNL and micro PCNL and ultra mini, um, you know, I think we lower the threshold for performing procedures in an antegrade fashion. And I think anything that um, that avoids the use of a stent, if you can avoid the use of a stent, is a win in patients' eyes. So I, I think it's an important skill to have. I think if you really want to treat stones, you you need to have that available, or you're sort of doing patients a disservice if you don't offer it. So I, I, I think in training, more and more programs, I think they are exposed to more and more PCNL. And it just lets you, you know, be a be a be a a more comprehensive, you know, stone doctor in the end. So it's an important skill to learn. And the more you do, the better you are at it, and the, you know, the less daunting a a procedure it is. So I, it's it's just a matter of numbers. And I think in any practice, you know, there's probably a fair amount, fair number of patients that need to be treated percutaneously that could keep your skills up, you know, in the course of a year, for instance. Amazing. Yeah, I think learning curve, education, number of reps, these are all, you know, fascinating uh, topics that you've actually, I think, studied and published on over the course of your career. So thank you for your insight. Thank you for your perspective. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for the um, audience, of course. Thank you. Thanks so thank much. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much, Jose and Aditya. It's really a pleasure.